Welcome to the Free Speech Union Podcast. I'm Dane Giroux. Our guest today is David Gregory. David is the co-owner of Severin Films, British-born but Los Angeles-based, and we'll get to why over the course of this discussion, won't we? We will. <laughs> Severin Films are, and I'm lifting straight off your website now, quote, the industry's foremost independent distributor of provocative cinema for physical media and digital platforms. Severin Films is also a leading producer of bonus features, trailers, music promos, sizzle reels, and feature-length documentaries for clients around the world, end quote. Welcome, David. Uh, thank you for having me. Britain has been the enemy of genre cinema for time immemorial. <laughs> now, that quote that I took from a documentary interview that you shared with me. Yeah. I'm in the TV and film industry myself. I'm a writer and a lifelong horror fan. And British censorship is something that I was always very fascinated by. I think this is a very interesting topic because it just speaks about censorship the faces change, but I think there's a lot of underlying issues with censorship that do remain the same. Yes. Dodgy research and all that kind of stuff that you touched on. Yeah, or, or fixed research in, uh, in in the case of the video nasties. Exactly. So, um, and we can get into all of that. Shall we start with uh, a little bit about uh, Severin Films and, and what compelled you to start it? Because this all feeds into the to the topic doesn't it well it does yes i mean it was uh buying rights and putting out special editions of the kind of movies that i like which are you know genre movies uh, to to put it uh to to make a generalization um is something that i've always wanted to do since i was working at a video distributor when i was still in school in 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 england that was like my summer job was working for a video distributor and it always used to bother me that they uh, that the uh, existing distributors at the time were not treating the films with the respect that they deserved and uh like i understand it now it was in kind of the the era right after the video nasties and all these uh, masters were floating around so basically the that these fly by night companies were basically getting the masters and just churning uh films out properly without the rights and so they didn't give a shit that it was a lucio fulci movie or, <laughs> or something like that so uh but uh you know i wanted to package them with the original artwork and uh, put interviews on 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 the tapes back then and that sort of thing which i did which we did when we first started our, our first label exploited um we we had a vhs label and we we would put we would try and put the films you know in widescreen and then have interviews with the filmmakers on the tapes after the movies um so that was that was kind of the beginning of our boutique label life but the problem was we were still in england so, and so the films we were doing things like um axe which was a, a, a fairly relatively tame video nasty still had to be cut because it was still considered obscene in the uk uh, and even the the censor who i was speaking to at the time at the bbfc was like i don't even know what to cut out of this we were going to give it a 15 and then we realized it was one of the video nasties i tried to sneak it in under its alternative title california axe massacre and um and he came back and said but their hands are tied we have to cut something so they they 
found some innocuous scene with uh, with a tiny bit of blood and that's what they had to cut so anyway this 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 carried on and it was just impossible to make a living because uh, obviously collectors don't want a cut version of the film and we're appealing to collectors but also the expense of getting a film rated in a small territory like the UK compared to the US, you know, t- took a huge chunk of your upfront uh, um, uh, uh, royalties, you know, of your income. So it was hard to actually turn a profit. So um, I made my first documentary, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth, um, during that period while I was still living in England. Obviously, I shot it in the US, but, uh, in Texas and Los Angeles. Um and it was at that point that William Lustig, the director of Maniac and Maniac Cop and um, Vigilante and various great exploitation movies, he was working for Anchor Bay, which was one of the uh, one of the key distribution labels in the U.S. that really dove into the the DVD market when it first started, doing special editions of all kinds of movies. But the films that I think that really made their name were the Italian, European horror movies as well as the hammer movies and uh, you know all the fulcis and uh, argentos and and all all the giallo and all that kind of stuff they they were they were doing great additions so bill hired me to do the extras and the first one he hired me on was the wicker man and uh, that was kind of my transition to going to uh, to the u.s which i embraced because you know this is very much what i wanted to do and i just couldn't couldn't do it in england we have an image in our head, especially as New Zealanders, that Britain is the motherland. It's not so different from us. But we uh, we banned the Texas Chainsaw Massacre here until about 1984. Mm-hmm. And I was a horror kid. You know, I was into Karloff and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I was fascinated by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because, you know, you'd go to libraries and in cult cinema books and stuff, you'd get a, a glimpse of Leatherface and think, yes. I just have to see that film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to drive me completely bananas and I'm, I may have a <laughs> nervous breakdown, but I have to see that film, you know. Yeah. So the, the band was lifted in 84 and, and, and it went straight to the biggest theatres in the country um, on, on Queen Street in, in Auckland. Um, and, th- and then it was just on, on Beta Max here and it was just a staple of um, of the videos in video stores. But I was reading that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remained banned in Britain until 1998. That's correct. It was actually uh, it actually had a theatrical release in London back when back in 1974, I think, like pretty soon after it was made. But it had to get a local council rating because the BBFC banned it outright. So it did play theatrically. And then when video came in, because you didn't have to have a rating, it was available from, I think, like 1980 through to 1984, when everything was made illegal. And um, and it was one of the huge video hits, as it was everywhere. You yeah. know, that's when that's when it had its real successful uh, life after its initial, you know, first run in the US and, and, and I guess around the world. But But as a video title, it was a staple. Uh, that everybody knew just by the title. It was notorious. Um, so, yeah, so that was actually never one of the video nasties. It was it was never actually banned as obscene. But the problem was, after the uh, Obscene Publications Act, uh, um, uh, sorry, after the uh, Video Recordings Act was introduced, where everything had to get a rating by the censor, 
the same censor was still in charge and he would not pass the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So that remained banned until he uh, was ousted in the 90s and then immediately it was released. And again, like like a, you're saying it was in New Zealand, it got a big theatrical release and was playing in multiplexes finally and was was a huge, huge hit for the company that brought it out. And that's actually around the time that I that I went to the US and did the the documentary because um because my partner and I had actually with our label exploited, we had actually negotiated a deal for the rights to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we thought that was it. That was gonna set us up for life. But yeah. the the censor was like, it will never pass. You cannot, you know, there's 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 no cutting of this film and and uh you know, even in even in a censored version, it's the pornography of terror, I think was his his quote about it. Uh, was that there's nothing you can cut down that would that would make it any less harmful to British society. So we never went through with that deal. And then when he retired, we immediately went back to the rights owners and said, hey, let's do the deal now. And they said, we've already done it with somebody else. Um, I'm sure we weren't the only ones. It wasn't like we were just, we, we were gazumped on the situation, but it felt like that at the time that we had this deal in place. Had we, you know, had the, uh, had the deep enough pockets to get the rights and then just uh you know leave it on the shelf for a few years maybe would have done that but uh but no that wasn't that wasn't an opportunity for us in our early 20s um so anyway that's what led me to go and 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 do the documentary like like you it was one of it was a film i was absolutely obsessed with it was one of the first ones they actually saw in the video era and uh you know it it amazed me because i was obsessed with getting the, the the bloodiest films the films that had the bloody covers and in the vhs era when i was in my teens uh but this one, of course, is is relatively bloodless, but it feels like it's just as violent, if not more so, even though you don't necessarily, you know, see the see the splatter. Well, the pornography of terror is is quite a good way to describe it, really. Well, the worst thing, the worst things that he said about it was that essentially he uh, uh, he was more concerned that the working class would would see it he said something along the lines of it's fine for educated people but it's not okay for you know the average car worker in birmingham i think was the example he used and so that was you know that that gives you a pretty good idea of how he viewed the british public <laughs> yeah that, that that's fascinating the censorship really targeting working class people so I, yeah. I think another time he mentioned it he said he said that people sitting in their bed sits in london are the ones they're worried about you know and when video came in he was obsessed with this idea that people in their bed sits again basically inferring that people who are not necessarily well to do or well educated um, will sit there and rewind the bad bits and get you know sexual gratification from them which this was a complete fantasy of his i mean it was that i wish somebody had done a uh, you know a proper analysis of the way he saw the way people actually would react to these images because it was it was it had no basis in reality whatsoever or any kind of academic research he he the exorcist was another one he famously outlawed you know the exorcist was never banned you know from from the time that it came out and had its uh, theatrical release it also around 1974 i think but uh, but he would not allow it for home video uh, because he was afraid that teenage girls would see it and what it would do to teenage girls' minds if they were to see the exorcist. And the funny thing is, again, when he he was ousted from the BBFC, it got a huge theatrical release, this time through Warner Brothers, not through an independent. And 
it, it, the the teenagers who went to see it, thinking it was it was this notorious forbidden fruit, just found it either boring or funny. You know, there was that the, the the people of a certain age who had seen it, but you know, back then still found it utterly terrifying. But they, but but youngsters did not. This has got me thinking. The class system in New Zealand, though we we obviously have it in a form, it's probably not anywhere as pronounced as it would have been in England, especially in the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of the censorship really comes from that class system? And, and that could be the difference between, say, England and and a New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, obviously that James Furman, who that's the name of the head censor, some of his comments absolutely um, illustrate that point. But the other thing is, is that that you know, there was quite an inconsistency between uh, you know highbrow movies and exploitation movies in terms of what would be allowed through in sex and violence in, in, in art films compared to exploitation films, which again speaks to the idea that, uh, that as long as you know, you're, you're of certain stock or a certain level of education, then you, then you can handle that kind of imagery. So yeah, I think that there's, there was very much a, a class system at work here. Just this idea that the great unwashed, so to speak, uh, would would watch would watch things they would not be able to process in the same way that people with an education would. I think is pretty disgusting. So let's talk about the video nasties because I would imagine a, a lot of our listeners may not have heard the term or may have forgotten the term because it's. And the other thing is that video nasties here. Of course, we're, we're talking microwave massacre, films like that were not banned. Like I was 12 or 13 walking into video stores in South Auckland and I, I was seeing all these wonderful covers that made me think, oh, I just have to get my hands on that film. Um, so what was a video nasty? And, and just give us their rise and fall, basically. Well, it was, it was a term that actually came up in, in the tabloid press in England, but it was adopted also by the broadsheets and it was, uh, it was adopted by moral campaigners, most notably Mary Whitehouse, who was famous for years for keeping filth off television, you know, swearing or sex or anything like that. She was a tireless campaigner for, for, for making sure that only wholesome entertainment went into the homes of, uh, of the British public. Uh, but then it, but she was also, an excellent campaigner because she had the ear of politicians because politicians love nothing more than to be showing that they're doing you know what's good for the country whether or not it has any basis in fact or not and in this guy and it's a good way to dis- detract from actual problems in society to have some some easy target like uh, you know exploitation films uh, that are released by small companies um, and the video boom in England, I think, hit bigger than anywhere else in the world. You know, overnight it became, uh, well, not overnight, but very quickly it became a video was something that everybody had in, in their home and video rental shops showed up all over the country. And there was an enormous demand for movies. And in a, so side by side against, you know, the mainstream studio, Fair, which and the mainstream studios weren't so quick to it. They were skeptical about putting their films out on video because they thought, you know, that would that would limit their market later on for television screenings and things like that, which to a certain extent it did. But there was so much money to be made in video that ultimately it didn't matter. But they were skeptical about releasing certainly, you know, recent films uh, to the video market. So the independents were able to come in and buying up rights to any movies they could get their hands on, and so a lot of 
European uh, and American exploitation films and horror films uh, were snapped up cheaply, put out on video, and turned out to be what the public wanted. They were great renters. And of course, in, in the old traditions of exploitation, it was based on the key art, on the boxes. They weren't based on the names of the people in the movies or, or, the you've heard, or movies that you've necessarily heard of. Um, it was like, wow, that looks crazy. Let's, let's rent that, <laughs> you know? And so the more lurid, the more lurid the covers, yeah, the, the more likely they were going to be popular. Yeah. yeah, they were just fantastic, weren't they? I mean, yeah. some of the, the, the Lucia Fulci, the zombie fi- um, films and series and everything, just, yeah. just amazing. Even Shockwaves. I don't know if Shockwaves is a video nasty. That's a, that's a UK film. Um, yeah, the, the box art was way better than the film. Yeah, it's actually a, a, a Florida production but it's but it's got peter cushing in it but yeah it was shot, shot in florida but uh right around the same same time he was shooting uh same year he shot star wars i think oh wow but uh, <laughs> so he just wanted to work but uh but yeah it's it, that was it but what happened was that the uh that mary whitehouse and the moral campaigners didn't like that this kind of entertainment was going into the home where families, you know, are supposed to be watching wholesome entertainment. So she started whipping up a frenzy in the tabloid press about the fact that, you know, essentially insinuating that snuff films were being, you know, distributed. Um, uh, but, or, or, or a step below snuff films, so essentially like the most disgusting filth is, is entering our homes. And she readily admitted she'd never watched any of these movies, but she could just tell what they were. You know, yeah. she's heard the description and then she probably heard the description from the back of the box and the images on the front, which is exactly what they were selling them on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, and essentially she got the air of, uh, of, of Thatcher and, and, and politicians and, and, and obviously, you know, the day. Daily Mail ran a campaign to ban the sadist videos, and uh, and, and, and it, it was all over the news. And I remember it when I was in school. I was probably you know nine or ten when this first sort of started becoming a huge news story, and that was just the era when I was starting to really get into this stuff and um and i couldn't believe it because the way they were talking about these movies was 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 a lie you know it was they weren't nearly as as and i could tell that even at a young age that that this is that they're, they're lying that this is not this is not the truth these are clearly works of fiction they're pretty rough around the edges but you know if you like that sort of thing they're they're, they're pretty fun i mean there there's definitely there was look it went from things the actual video nasty list which ultimately ended up being a list of 39 titles on the obscene list but it the list went up to like 81 titles that were prosecuted at, at one time or another but then it was the, the final list was 39 but it had things on it like the evil dead the first evil dead it had you know dario argento's tenebrae it had the aforementioned axe which is you know essentially a, a a, a good rural horror film, but with absolutely nothing offensive in it whatsoever. Mm. But you could imagine, you know, the police running into video shops. They didn't know what they were looking at. They just took up, took anything off the shelves that they thought might fit the bill for what was being considered obscene. There was no actual, um, guidelines they had to rely on the covers and so sometimes they would they would steal things like the best little whorehouse in texas or or the big red one 
or or Apocalypse Now. You know, famously they took they 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 seized films, which which you know people were like, that's that's why would you take the best little whorehouse in Texas? Well, it sounds like a porno, you know. Who knows? They, and 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 I guess a certain amount of viewing of these films happened, but a lot of it didn't. A lot of the films were never actually watched in these court cases because the defendants pled guilty. So uh, that's it. Wait, okay, guilty. It's obscene because there was such a frenzy going on and such a threat that people would go to prison if they were found distributing these obscene films that they just, you know, took the plea and, 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 and went away with a fine and were done, you know, but one distributor did actually go to prison, a guy called David Hamilton Grant, who, um, distributed a film called nightmares in a damaged brain its original title is nightmare um and he distributed a version of nightmares in a damaged brain which was more uncut than the version that had been passed by the censors and for some reason he was targeted and he was actually sent down for distributing this movie which i now own the worldwide rights to <laughs> so for it's you know anyway it was it was basically a, a a crazy time because the video shop owners this this new business which had which had uh, swept england uh where people were starting up new independent businesses all of a sudden they were under threat and they didn't know if what they were stocking was was potentially seizable when they were raided because the police were raiding video shops up and down and just throwing all these tapes into bags and taking away video shop owners who who didn't know what they'd done wrong. It was uh, it was pretty nuts. So some of those video shop owners would have just anything that even looked or, or smelt like a horror film. They they may have kept away from. Did that kind of thing happen? Absolutely. And and the distributors uh, pre censored quite a lot of movies, films like Halloween Three: Season of the Witch or or Videodrome. The 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 distributors actually cut them before submitting them to the BBFC after this, because they just didn't want to shine the light on, on, on themselves as, uh, as potentially video nasty distributors. The chap that was um, sent, he, he was sent to prison. Um, was it his name Grant? Was it? Yeah. David Hamilton Grant. David Hamilton Grant. He was sent to prison. Now, wasn't the story there that uh, there was a cut version. I think you, you started going into that, but, but, the version that he distributed was slightly longer. He may have not even known that was the case. Is that correct? Yes, quite possibly. I mean, I don't know why he would have. Um, so they, there was a, a, a authorized X-rated version that went out in cinemas, and then which was cut. And then he released uh, a version with, a, I think, about 30 seconds more of gore in it to video. But it was still cut quite significantly. I mean, it's a very gory movie. Um, it's a you know, it's a it's an early '80s slasher movie in the vein of of Maniac and um, mm. Pieces and things like that. It's got a lot of splatter kills in it. Um, yeah, but I I don't know why he would have released a slightly less cut version uh, because other labels were actually releasing the strong uncut version and advertising them as such like zombie flesh eaters cut heavily by the sensor, but because mm. there was no censorship on video, they were able to release the uncut version. And so I don't know why he didn't just release the strong uncut version of nightmare, but, but, uh, but he didn't and they still got into trouble for it. Wow. I mean, that's incredible that a, a man could do a prison term over there. Yeah. Yes, it is. <clears throat> We're just finishing up a documentary about him, actually, because he's quite an interesting character. Uh, you know, his career outside of uh, of just that is is also pretty interesting. Mm. And and so, how long did he go away for? 
I think it was six months. I mean, it wasn't, you know, years, but it's still, you know, a prison term for distributing a horror movie is pretty extreme. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course it, it, he was made an example of, I mean, basically that's another reason why people were, uh, were, were so terrified to stock or distribute horror movies for, for a little while. Yeah. It was about striking fear into the hearts of everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So pre the, the Video Nasties era, was censorship a, a big deal in the UK? Like Straw Dogs, that, that was that banned? And, and, and no, Straw Dogs was Straw Dogs was fine until the Video Recordings Act in in the eighties. So that was another one that was that was banned after the Video Recordings Act was was introduced. That was never you know seized or banned or anything like that up until the Video Recordings Act came in. So again, it introduced an era where things became stricter in the mid eighties than they were in the mid seventies. Interesting. Um, uh, but the BBFC was, was, uh, was, was always pretty strict on, on, on sex and horror movies. You know, there was no, uh, hardcore porn allowed until the, uh, the 21st century in, in the UK. And it's still, you know, fairly regulated in terms of what's actually passed, um, but uh but and then horror movies like uh you know freaks and bedlam and uh, uh island of lost souls and stuff like that were banned back in you know the the 30s and 40s so so they have a pretty rich history of cutting and and banning movies i mean it's amazing it was amazing to kind of learn just how many movies were just trimmed which is what james Furman's uh, uh used to say it needs trims or minor cuts was his was his saying they used to say which obviously is infuriating for a filmmaker it's like it's not for you to cut our movie <laughs> it's for us you know but he there were so many movies where and that's why i say that that um that britain is the enemy of of exploitation film uh, preservation because essentially we, we spend a lot of time now scouring the globe for complete prints of movies if the negatives lost or 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 print and that there's no accessible prints sometimes you'll find a print at the british film institute uh, but of course it'll be the the bbfc censored version so it doesn't really help you know you still can't uh, that stuff is now lost in addition to that, it's also very difficult to work with the British Film Institute and the BBC are just as difficult as well. So it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hurdles to actually getting to, you know, to, to, to the final element that, uh, that you would want to release of that, the director's cut of any movie. A lot of them will just be completely lost, wouldn't they? Like the Wicker Man has lost scenes and will never be recovered. Yes, and that's not censorship related, though. That was no, that, that's uh, that not censorship related. Yeah. But I mean, there would be a lot of these elements. They're not going to stick around. They wouldn't have stuck stuck around. Yes, that's right. I mean, well, no, that's not necessarily true. I mean, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of producers who are still around, they they know where their final negatives are. But you know, the deeper you dig for the more obscure films that haven't had a release, sometimes there's a reason they haven't had a release because there's no film element or because the producer's dead for years and doesn't have any heirs or, or their heirs don't care about the movie or things like that. I mean, there's any number of reasons why films sort of become lost to time or the last version you're ever going to see is the VHS release is going to be the best it's ever going to get. There's, there's, there's plenty of those instances, which we spend a lot of time. I'm doing it now on, on, on two or three different movies, trying to find an element somewhere in the world, which, uh, which we can, which we can get, so we can release the uncut version of a movie in a in a version that's better than the version that was released in the eighties. So you're basically a, a 
Blu-ray distribution company slash detective agency, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of detective work or archaeology, as we sometimes call it. It's, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's various, um, cooperative archives around the world who are very helpful when it comes to telling you, you know, or, and have good databases and things like that. But of course, now we live in, the world where films are made digitally, lots and lots and lots of labs around the world have closed down. So either their elements were thrown away or they were sent to another or put in storage without any inventory or anything like that. And so it's very, very hard to unearth certain things. But then there are other producers who never got rid of their stuff and it's still in exactly the same place that it was, you know, back in the seventies. And so you just have to kind mm. of dust off the pigeon shit and, uh, and, and then, <laughs> then you're good to go. You, you must have encountered some very interesting personal stories in, in, in looking for some of these elements. Um, you know, the years after a film was made, what ha- where it went, uh, I mean, there, there would have been films and elements that passed through various sets of hands and, and yeah. everything. Is Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, no, doing that kind of tr- tracing of the elements, again, that's a, 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 it takes a, a lot of our time is doing that. I mean, the aforementioned film Axe um, was a particularly interesting one because I ended up meeting the director through through a mutual friend that Stephen Thrower, who's written a lot of great books on exploitation films. Uh, he introduced me to Frederick Friedel, who who directed Axe, and he thought his film was lost forever, but I knew where the negative was and we were able to actually go and get uh, but he'd he'd kind of given up on it because the people who financed the movie had fallen on hard times and then had lots of family tragedy and and just so it was a really kind of sad story until we sort of were able to go into this old crusty dark archive and 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 find his negative and restore it and then we went back to north carolina where he shot it and met with the people he made it with and back to the locations and all that that was really fun um and and then because i mentioned pigeon shit before it was um (laughs) it was to do with a uh one of the video nasties was called um expose aka house on straw hill with udo Kier and fiona richmond and linda hayden and the producer director died a couple of years ago and i went with um the people who were handling his estate to his house and he basically had a barn which had holes in the roof where the negatives of all his films had been sitting for you know 40 years and they were completely covered covered in you know years of the elements and Mm. uh so i had to just go, go through a whole day of digging through that like it was archae- like an archaeological dig yeah. <laughs> to try and find yeah. reels of film that oh, would that's be usable <laughs> that's a what a fantastic job so you're going there and you're you're the one actually digging digging it, out in, in this case, yes, and I have, you know, I have plenty of colleagues around the world who help. You know, we have we have yeah. specialists in Paris and, and and Germany and Spain and Italy where 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 they can do the same sort of work to talk to the usual suspects. You start with the labs, then you go to the collectors, and then you try and find, you know, someone who's related to the producer. All that kind of stuff. It's just it's mm. all part of the process, and it all becomes part of the story of the film, doesn't it? It, it does, yes. So, so looking at research again, and the research that some of these censors will, will claim they've they've done. Uh, in one of the documentaries you sent me, uh, you made the comment that a censor said blood on breasts is a no no. So, if we have a shot of blood on breasts, that has to go. Now, there's no scientific <laughs> reason 
why we, we know that blood on a breast is going to make people act a certain way or not. I've actually read research that claimed that, because um, uh, a lot of this stuff is very, very inconclusive. Yes. Like with video <laughs> games, for instance, there's, there's actually research that shows that people that play violent video games are, are less likely to be violent in real life. Well, I don't. I think that's equally inconclusive, to be fair. But but again, it's like it's very it's a very hard thing to prove. It's There's probably been... an impossible thing to nail down. Exactly. But the blood on breast thing was was very much a, a James Furman bugbear again. It was something that he again assumed was was something that people would rewind and you know start to find uncontrollable desires from watching blood on breasts and then go out and cause mayhem but he also had the same thing about uh you know imitable drug use or imitable uh, uh weaponry uh and so so any shooting up close-ups or anything like that they had to go so train spotting was 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 cut you know um mm. great british film train spotting was was cut where it wasn't anywhere else in the world as far as i'm aware uh, in the western world i should say um and, so the um, same- this is the same guy who was there for decades. Yeah, he was. He had the longest tenure. It's kind of like the Queen. He had the longest tenure at the BBFC of anyone in history. So, <laughs> and, and it really came down to that one. Just that one. Ultimately, thing. no. They so they protect. So they were very secretive as well. That was the other mm. thing. You couldn't go in and argue your case, which you can even do that with the MPAA here, who are just as ridiculous. But the thing about the US is that you don't have to have an MPAA. A rating you can go out unrated so that's what we do that's what most <laughs> most uh, boutique labels do they don't go and get an mpaa rating but if you were to get something rejected you could actually go in and make a case in front of the rating boards as to why you think it's okay and hopefully get it overturned i don't know what the ratio is because i haven't really dealt with the mpaa but you couldn't do that with the bbfc you couldn't uh, you know they would just tell you this needs to go they wouldn't tell you why they would just say this needs to be cut from here from, from here to here in the us they can't do that because that would be considered censorship and that's unconstitutional they can't give you the um the actual time code that you need to cut out they can just say make this scene a little less harrowing or <laughs> something like that you know whereas mm. whereas whereas the bbfc they would just give you actual cut points you had to submit a time coded copy of the film in order to get the rating and they so they do have a board and they do have people who watch it but ultimately james Furman would would frequently overrule the rest of the board because he had his own opinion so there were there were there were female um uh uh bbfc uh, rating people who basically would disagree with him about his theory on the exorcist and teenage girls. And he would say he was a better feminist than them and that he knew better. And so he would overrule them. And that was his decision was final. You don't mess with James Furman. So, but, but he was just really going off vibes that he had really. I mean, there was absolutely there seemed yeah. to be, Oh, that's great. And he was installed around the beginning of the Thatcher era, or was he? Yeah, I think he was there from something like 1974, maybe. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, so he was there into the into the late 90s. So, yeah, it was over, wow. over well over 20 years that he was there, I believe. Um, and he, uh, but, but then, but then the guy who took over was a guy called, um, 
Robin Duval, and we had still had run-ins with him with Last House on the Left. He he mm. thought he was being um, progressive by allowing Last House on the Left, which was outright banned under James Furman. He would allow it with certain cuts, and we came back <laughs> thinking that we would be like, "That's great, we can finally release it." But no, we didn't want to release it cut. We wanted to make the case that it was that it was not dangerous to society. And so they had. So, so what you can do with the BBFC is actually mount a um, a challenge against their decision, but it's an expensive thing to do. It's not like you can you you can just go in and make your case. You actually have to do a legal battle with them in a court mm-hmm. which is run by them. It's not a uh, it's not an actual court. It's a court with you know with with a panel that they call independent but it's people that they have selected so, so it's in being cost prohibitive as well it's like it's absolutely really worth, worth yeah. doing so yeah. now the question with censorship which i think is a major one is that did any of this work like in term, in the long term because i know from my own experience clockwork orange i saw the poster i thought what the hell is going on here? Ooh, R20. Well, that instantly became an incentive to watch it. Yes. So, again, I was going to libraries and getting images of Alex and the other droogs and these cult uh, cinema books and and, and so forth. Uh, uh, Texas Chancellor, again, I was determined to see these films. And because they were censored, that that was the allure. And and, and I got there in the end, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. So... with all these videos being taken off the market, people didn't just shrug their shoulders and walk away from them, did they? What happened there? No, no, they didn't. Well, I can also say that, you know, when Texas Chainsaw Massacre was finally released and Last House on the Left was finally released about five years after ours was, was rejected, there was not an upswing in crime in 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 the uk so there's that first of all yeah but but i think what you're what you're leading to is the fact that it created this enormous black market in in the uk of 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 actual uh you know of film fans and horror fans who wanted to get this stuff which you could get you know if you just went across the water to holland or france or or spain this stuff was perfectly legal um so there was this this huge um collector's market and we would meet at events like shock around the clock at the scala cinema in london and uh, watch uncut movies because that was a cinema club so they had slightly different rules um and people would trade the the either bootleg tapes or the tapes that had been removed from shelves where the where the video store owners did not actually destroy them as they were supposed to they just you know put them in the back room thinking that eventually they would be allowed so so those things actually became huge collectors items and, st- and now go some of them go for thousands of of, of dollars for one tape so, holy relics <laughs> yes absolutely so uh so yeah so it, it really created this kind of determined bunch of uh, bunch of yeah. horror fans who wanted to you know they, they just wanted to see this stuff myself included um where it's like we we knew it wasn't uh, melting our brains in the way that we were being told and we were we were damn well gonna see it because people in other parts of the world very very close by and far away were able to see this stuff without issue so in England today, from from what you know, has it has it has there been a, a dramatic thaw, or is it still relatively? Are they still pretty censorship happy compared to other countries? Do you think it's 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 thawed massively since since the eighties, which is when it was absolutely at its nadir, um, and but it still is uh, pretty strict. 
relatively. Mm. I mean, you know, some of the video nasties are still banned and have been one of them was banned, I think, as recently as last year. Um, again, wow. a movie from the 70s was, was banned again last year. And then some of them are still cut as well. And of course, it's very easy to get these movies now. It's very easy to import them. And so they take the business away from the UK because they'll just buy them from the US, often from us or from labels like ours, where we're mm. allowed to release them uncut. Uh, so yeah, there is, there is still censorship in the UK. But the other thing about that is that, that the fact that you have to get a film rated in the UK, which is not unique to the UK, I hasten to add. I mean, plenty of countries have, have mandatory rating systems. Um, but I believe we do. Yeah. But you, so, so basically if you made a backyard feature film with your friends and it came out pretty well and you wanted to distribute it, um, well, you'd probably have to pay the same as the budget again in order to make it legal to distribute beyond, you know, your friends and family. We made a, a, a low budget exploitation style film in, in the year 2000 and, and mm-hmm. it got into the major film festival here. And yeah, we had to spend $2,000. There you go. <laughs> and I think that's outrageous. I mean, basically, you know, that's 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 a complete uh, handicap for for no budget filmmakers who are who are t- trying to trying to make their start. You know, yeah. And it's the it's the same with with small labels. To get started as a label in the UK is so much so much more of a, a battle than it is to do here in the US. So, uh, Severin Films, I, I went to your website and I saw that you have the Changeling coming out. Yes. So- now, uh, one of our more respectable rate, titles, yes. Yeah, it is. Like w- with the exchange rate, it's going to sting me, but I have to. I have to buy that. Like that's. <laughs> I think that's just one of the. It's probably the greatest ghost story committed to film. I agree. Yeah, I mean it's, George it's, C. Scott is just absolutely amazing in that film. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, and I've become quite friendly with the director peter medak and uh uh, and he was very helpful in in getting us the the rights to the movie to finally get it uh get the rights cleared after many years and then we've uh, been able to scan the best available element which is an internegative the negative is currently lost um Mm. but the internegative is a very good element and uh we scanned it in 4k uh, and have just um, done a full new 4K restoration of it. So that's coming out later this month. Oh, that's going to be fantastic. P- Peter Medic's had a fascinating career, hasn't he? He has indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he was a Hungarian refugee who, who got to England in the late 50s. And uh, his first friend, he says, was Nicholas Rogue. So he got to kind of apprentice under Nicholas Rogue as a cameraman. Wow. Uh, his first jobs were at Hammer, working as like a clapper boy at uh, on Phantom of the Opera and, and Captain Clegg. Uh, and then he just kind of worked his way up and uh, as an assistant director. And then his first film was a movie called Negatives with Glenda Jackson. I think it was her mm-hmm. first film as well. Wow. And then he hit it big with the ruling class. Yeah, the, I, I saw the, the criterion of that years and years ago. That's an outrageous film. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And then he did a, a film with uh, with his uh, then buddies Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan called Ghost and the Noonday Sun, which was a catastrophically bad production experience for him and a pretty bad movie came out of it. Uh, which he just did. He just did a movie about the making of that film called the ghost of peter sellers and mm-hmm. so that almost you know destroyed his career but then he you know jumped back up uh made films like the odd job and uh, a couple of others in the uk before 
moving to i guess he moved to the year he'd been he actually was under contract to universal in the 60s but then he went back to mm. england and then he moved to hollywood he did the, uh, uh romeo is bleeding you know the men's club uh he he's done episodes of you know big television shows he's he's been very prolific yeah incredible career uh, mm-hmm. there, there are directors like that who aren't necessarily names to to the public but they've had fantastic careers and they've yeah. made incredible films and and he he really is one of those uh, directors yeah. yeah he is so um thank you for your time today david this has been amazing um uh, can you uh, just tell people where to find your films because if if you have any interest in in some of these rare titles and and what i love about what you do is sort of it's the way tarantino treats exploitation films you know he a lot of people will will a lot of directors can take these films and sort of almost try to satirize them but but no he saw the beauty in jack hill didn't he he sure did yeah that's why we have a pulp fiction because he saw the the beauty and the in, in the heart and in the spirit mm-hmm. and the care of of those filmmakers and i feel that you're doing the same job really aren't you you know you're, well, you're- very much so i mean we 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 absolutely love and respect the 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 movies and the filmmakers and the work that went into them and and we treat them like the classics that we think they are so yeah so anyway the label severin films and it's severinfilms.com uh and uh, yeah that's where you'll see our library is uh 200 and something movies at this point and counting. And, uh, you know, luckily, uh, you know, people who are film collectors are still collecting physical media. So, uh, so we're still making it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakitiano.